0: It's Monday, February 12th, 2024, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Former President Trump said some crazy shit, and I guess we gotta care. Remember the period? It was years, years long, when we didn't have to care. He'd say it, or he'd truth social it, and it'd be crazy, but we didn't care, so it'd be less crazy. Eh, let him be crazy, who cares? But now I guess we gotta care. But do we gotta care? Let's see, well, let's go and play for you the crazy thing. If dues, they aren't really dues, aren't paid, it's not like the country's pay dues to NATO, no NATO's, NATO's real, that part's real, then Trump would, really would have, let Russia invade. Here's what he said. If we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? I said, absolutely not. They couldn't believe the answer. And everybody, you never saw more money pour in the Secretary General Stoltenberg well I don't know if he is anymore, but he was my biggest fan. He said, all these presidents came in, they'd make a speech, they'd leave, and that was it. And they all owed money, and they wouldn't pay it. I came in, I made a speech, and I said, you got to pay up. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. And the money came flowing in. I read some headlines about this statement. CNN, Trump says he would encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they want to any NATO country that doesn't pay enough. Washington Post, Trump says he'd disregard NATO treaty, urge Russian attacks on US allies. Well, and there are many more in the same vein. And I guess they're not ignoring it, so I can't is a big, stupid, you know, potentially very dangerous thing to say. That's all true, but I heard him as not saying what he would do, but what he did do. It was, in other words, another crazy bullshit brag about how great he was, and it is bullshit. No one, no foreign head of state goes up to him and says, "Sir, sir." That's what the subservient person in every anecdote he tells says. A big, tough guy like you down front. This guy doesn't cry, and he said, "Sir, sir." That's 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 one of the seven stock characters. Characters and the Trump anecdotes and then he said, you got to pay your bills, which we know he thinks is bullshit. Then there's the issue of NATO delinquency. What's he really talking about? All right. Countries in NATO don't really pay dues to NATO. What they have is a benchmark. Well, they contribute a little bit to the common fund. But in general, there is a benchmark for a percent of GDP, 2% of gross domestic product that all the members of NATO say all the other members of NATO should pay. And then they wind up not paying it. When Trump came into office, the United States would and has always exceeded 2% of GDP on defense because we're great, nice people? No, because we have a very uh, robust war machine. But anyway, we would definitely be above 2%. And every year, one or two other countries would exceed the limit. Greece, Greece was normally good. So Trump, to give him credit, did jawbone other countries into greater defense spending. Or maybe he was so dangerous that they said, we better spend some money on defense. But what really did the trick was Russia, Today, if you look at the NATO countries that exceed the 2% threshold, you have the US and Greece, and Poland, Estonia, Lithuania, Finland, Romania, Hungary, Latvia, and just above 2%, the United Kingdom and the Slovak Republic. Proximity to Russia is a giant predictor of, quote, paying your bills. The laggards are countries far away from Russia, like Spain, Luxembourg, and Belgium. But in truth, This wasn't a vow for the future as much as anything other than it being bullshit. It was a vainglorious brag about how Trump's salesmanship and real politic got other countries to pay more of their bill. And now that every head of state and every leader of NATO is treating it like an actual pronouncement, It does play right into Trump's hands. It seems to mark him as looking out for U.S. interests. It maybe burnishes his image as a negotiator. It appalls the internationalists, but none of these people would ever vote for him in the first place. So was it outrageous? Yes, but mostly to the already outraged, who are right to be irked, annoyed, find him off-putting, outraged. All that's true, but I say we should treat this in the category of more, I'll say the word again, bullshit than anyone else. Let us lower the threat level to defecate con two, If you must, not a flashing red light, a steady brown one. On the show today, I just find myself continuing to marvel at the newfound concern over Joe Biden's memory and the mechanism that set off this concern and the tactics being used to rebut the concern. It's a campaign of personal attestation. I've never seen the man forget anything. We'll discuss that on the spiel, but first... I was reading about an execution, the execution in Alabama by nitrogen hypoxia and media observers who are allowed to be there trying to time the gasps of the condemned party had to estimate how long he went on gasping because while they were allowed to observe, they weren't allowed to wear watches, which is weird and I think telling. Now that's a state execution. We bring you a story or stories of execution on the federal level, which began in the last years of the Trump administration, it was in fact a rush to kill. And that is the name of the eight part podcast that looks into the Midwestern facility where the U.S. carries out all federal executions. George Hale is the journalist behind this podcast and he joins me next. Federal death row is in Terre Haute, Indiana. It went unused as a site of executions for 17 years. And then in the last years of the Trump administration, there was a push to execute prisoners. It was, you could say, a rush to kill, which is the name of a new podcast. George Hell is the reporter behind this series. He is a witness to a few of these executions, and he talks about the whole process in Rush to Kill. George, welcome to the gist. Thanks. So as a reporter in Terre Haute, you had to know that this was on your beat, but was it lying stagnant or fallow because there weren't any actual executions for so long?
1: Uh, yeah, totally. I, um, I had no idea that they were gonna start and I had no uh, expectation of ever being involved in any of this. And so, when
0: they decide to start, does an apparatus, let's just talk about the media part of it, does a media apparatus kick in? Do reporters who have been on this beat, or maybe someone who covered the execution of McVeigh, did they reach out to them and say, okay, you're back to being a witness to these executions?
1: Uh, No, as far as I know, no. Um, In fact, that was one of the things that was really unique about this is how, um, you know, unlike in places like Texas or Florida where the journalists kind of know what they're doing. Um, The ones here uh, kind of had to figure it out, you know, um, as it went along, as it went along. How'd they
0: decide who to contact and what kind of access to give them?
1: They didn't contact us, so we contacted them. Um, They, uh, there's a protocol, it's it's ancient. Like you mentioned, it goes back to McVeigh. I don't think it's been changed at all. so there's a certain there's a certain amount of space for you know each type of media, and we I guess fill the radio, um, you know check check the radio box. But um, actually, but it's interesting though that you mentioned that because there were, I think because the protocol hasn't been updated in so long, there were some journalists that weren't allowed access that you'd think would. But they didn't work for, you know, sort of an ancient uh, form of media like radio.
0: Right, right. The the legacy media was deferred to and maybe other media that had bigger outlets. There was no um, no allowance made for, say, a podcast or a blog or anything tech or anything on the Internet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like, in my opinion, you know, probably the best reporter who was out there covering it is Liliana Segura at The Intercept. But she was not allowed to, to witness any of the executions, for example.
0: Talk about the procedure uh, beyond just what the media saw. How did they decide what to do? Because your reporting uh, on it was pretty interesting. You had to go through Texas to give us some idea of what federal death row protocols would be like.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, I think that they based a lot of what they did on Texas, like the way Texas does things. Um, the 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 first, of course, the first state that ever used lethal injection was Texas, um, and so. Yeah, you can get a lot of kind of the origin story, I guess, of the federal death penalty sort of if you go to uh, Texas, Um, because the federal government hasn't been executing people themselves for very long. They didn't build um, a place to even do it until, I want to say like 1999. And then, of course, they didn't use it until 2001 um, with McVeigh.
0: Are all federal death penalties carried out through lethal injection?
1: Uh, Yes, although that's not a requirement necessarily. And what is the lethal uh, cocktail that they use? Uh, so they just use the one drug, uh, pentobarbital. which is the where where things are kind of shifting lately, um, all across the U.S. Has Mainly, it always been like that? No, no. It's usually been this three drug procedure. Um, when it when it was first used in Texas, it was three drugs. Like, don't make me say their names. so I'll mispronounce them. But they're you know they each served a different purpose. Um, but you know after some of those drugs became unavailable and they became unavailable for reasons you probably know, which is that. Um, some of them are manufactured in Europe, for example, and Europe doesn't want uh, you know, these drugs being used for that purpose. Or Really, any of these companies, they don't want their drugs being used for executions. Um, and so the government's had a harder and harder time um, actually getting them in recent years. And so um, they've all started sort of shifting to this one drug that they know how to either get or manufacture called uh, pentobarbital, which is um, an anti-seizure medication.
0: So the three-drug cocktail, one drug was to calm, and they said to also anesthetize, but there is uh, some dispute about that. One of the drugs is to paralyze, which is more for the comfort of the viewer, and then one of the drugs is to kill. And you talked to um, pharmacologists who question the efficacy of this three-drug cocktail, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that they would probably question the three-drug cocktail, but I was asking more in terms of just the one drug that you know we use here, which... I think they would question even more because it's, you know, uh, you're asking, you're basically, you're asking this uh, one drug to do three different things, the three different things you just mentioned, um, uh, which I think is, yeah, I mean, I'm not a scientist or a doctor, but it's questionable. It sounds pretty questionable whether or not it can actually do all, all three things we imagine it can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and it also takes a lot longer. That's one of the things that's been really interesting about this whole process is that we've seen these executions dragged out much longer than they, than they would be anywhere else.
0: Yeah, because when you talk to the Texas people, they would talk about their lethal injections taking, what, three to five minutes?
1: Yeah, I think even then they were like, oh, yeah, we sat there for five minutes just as a formality. But, like, really, it was probably done in, like, one. Um, whereas the execution, I mean, the, the episode that comes out this Thursday, for example, I describe an execution that took, like, half an hour. Um, and we were all just standing there wondering what was going on and when it was going to end. And there's, you know, um, that, that doesn't seem to really happen in the states that use a three-drug cocktail. How many
0: executions did you personally witness? Five. And what was uh, – were there differences among them? Yeah, big differences.
1: Um, so, yeah, the the first one I witnessed, I noticed um, this reaction in the torso of the person who's being executed. Who was this? His name is William LaCroix. I noticed that this there's a sort of strange reaction in the stomach. It was really hard for me to, to put, put – all of us, actually, when we were leaving. It was funny. We all kind of debated what word to use, me and the other media witnesses. And the AP reporter mentioned – I think he said, you know, that his, his torso um, – contracted is the word maybe mixing up which one of us uses the right word but point being is that like it was an unnatural kind of movement i you know i i kind of thought of it as like um kind of gross but i kind of thought of it like when you throw up you can like kind of feel your stomach kind of just squeezing you know yeah, squeezing. Convulsed, maybe maybe yeah um and you know i later learned that that's possibly a sign that um that that the person's trying to breathe basically but their lungs aren't functioning anymore um and the reason their lungs aren't functioning is because of this phenomenon called uh, pulmonary edema, um, which has been becoming at least, well, it's, it's increasingly known about, I don't know if it's increasingly common, but we're cer- certainly learning more about it now, um, which is basically, you know, fluid rushing into the lungs. Um, and it's, uh, it's you know, if you're conscious for this, obviously, that's an excruciatingly painful sensation. Um, and some of the experts we talked to think that that stomach thing that we've been watching is basically, you know, someone someone trying to breathe, but not through their lungs because their lungs aren't working anymore, essentially.
0: And what were some of the other executions that you witnessed? What did you see there?
1: So the next one was actually just two days later, um, which was someone named Christopher Vialva. Um, He was actually the first black inmate to be executed since 2003. Uh, Yeah, three. Um, And um, his seemed to go better, but, you know, you never really know what's going on because of, you mentioned too, these people are paralyzed for the most part. Um, So I don't have much to say about that one. Um, the third one I witnessed was the worst of them all, probably, and that's what the next episode's about. Um, his name was uh, his name's Alfred Bourgeois. Um, his execution, actually, I found really disturbing for another reason too, which is that he adamantly denied having I mean, t- committed the crime that he was um, being executed for. You know, right before, which so that was obviously disturbing in and of itself. Um, but then, what happened to his body was even, you know, made, made it much worse, which is that exact same thing I just described, except prolonged and, in, um, in, yeah, seemingly lasting for, you know, forever. It was a, I don't remember exactly how long, but it was between 20 and 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, when we, we left the room, one of the reporters literally just threw up on the ground as soon as we walked <sighs> outside.
0: There is this phrase, the method and manner of execution. What's the distinction between those two things?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How many hours do you have to litigate this? Um, so the, the Federal Death Penalty Act, it uh, basically says that the... Um, that the government, when it's choosing an execution method or the the means of you know the means of killing, um, they have to use um, the same basically do it the same way that it's conducted in the state where the crime occurred because the federal death penalty is different, right? They're like obviously all these the crimes and the the sentencing they happen in America, but they happen in a specific place in America every time. Um, and I guess because the government doesn't have as much experience executing people or doesn't do it as often, they the law, the federal death penalty act, it relies on the, the way the state does it. So, so Indiana
0: has this outsized influence on the federal death penalty, the state of Indiana.
1: It could, but actually no. So it could only if a state doesn't have an execution method, then, they'll, then they might rely on Indianas. But um, all these people, they were from states where they did. Most most federal executions, even though they're federal, they still follow kind of where you'd expect them to be from anyway. So they're like from Texas and, you know, Missouri and these places that execute people themselves all the time, I guess just kind of a, a cultural thing, but um, and so when Bill Barr came up with his plan, that was one of the things that the defendants really challenged was the his plan, which was to use a single drug, um, pentobarbital, regardless of how um, the state the state conducted its execution. So, for example, the first execution was from someone who was sentenced to death in Arkansas. Arkansas uses that three drug process you mentioned, and so the federal government was saying, "Look, no method that doesn't refer to." Um, the specifics. It refers to just the general. So if they use lethal injection, we can use lethal injection. If they use hanging, we have to use hanging, whatever. And so since Arkansas uses lethal injection, the government's position was, all, that's all we had to do too. However we, however we want to. In fact, in court, they even argued that they could use fentanyl if they wanted to. They could use any drug. So...
0: Mm. so- <sighs> Some, to some degree, the federal government seems to be citing precedent and doing it like executions have always been done or done in other jurisdictions. But in other ways, the federal government seems to have its own rules, such as, as you point out in one of your episodes, in states, if, they're, if the execution is stayed or even delayed until midnight, well, then they have to draw up a new date of execution. But the federal government decided not
1: to play by that rulebook? Uh, that was a surprise. Yeah. Um, Tell so, me about that. sure. Yeah. So, I mean, like you just said, you know, in Alabama, for example, the, some of the more recent examples have been in Alabama where they've tried to execute somebody um, up until the point where the execution warrant says they have to stop, which is the end of the day, you know, that like obviously um, when a court, you know, determines that someone's eligible to be executed, they they say where and when and how. Um, these are like important parts of the process because, you know, they could, for example, the way they plan to do it could violate the Eighth Amendment. And so they have to tell you in advance how they're going to do it so that lawyers can, you know, sort it out in court. Um, and so that's the reason that the date is always so important, obviously. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but but here, once once you reach midnight and everyone started to go home, um, the federal government apparently just, we don't know this for sure because they don't actually do it in public, but they apparently just printed out another letter to the person being executed and just walked in the room and said, hey, you're actually technically being executed, you know, tomorrow, not today, because it's 12.01 a.m. And mm-hmm. so here we go. Yeah. Um, and
0: and you as uh, reporters had no idea that this was even possible. Even the lawyers didn't even know that?
1: No, they didn't seem to know. Um, they basically told people to go home. They, you know, they told, um, they said, you know, we can't, they can't do it after midnight. And so, and I mean, maybe they didn't, I mean, maybe they just didn't know the government would try to or not It's possible. Um, but it's not really notice. You know, it's not notice in the sense that, like, you know, it's not, it didn't make the podcast. So one quote I really wanted to use from, from an expert was, this is like Dracula coming up and say, saying, just heads up, I'm going to bite you now. You know, it's like yeah. it doesn't actually provide any notice of, or any, uh, pr- you know, there's no actual purpose for providing this notice other than to meet their requirement. It doesn't actually give you any opportunity, for example, to challenge how they plan to execute you or right. whatever. Right. going
0: to happen right now, and then it happens. Yeah, exactly. Okay, thanks so, for the notice.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: So, I'll put my cards on the table. I'm against the death penalty because I think that it's used, well, the word they always say is capriciously. Also, because there is this risk of getting it wrong. And it seems that historically, well, people on death row have been uh, uh, incorrectly put on death row. And there have probably been executions in U.S. history of innocent people. Add it all up. I just don't think that it is something that uh, our society should be doing because it can't do it well. So that said, however, it does seem it is the case that much of the objections to executions are not on these grounds because, you know, this would be the sort of argument you would make before the actual death date. And the arguments take the sheen of, well, this particular manner of execution isn't uh runs afoul of the Eighth Amendment cruel and unusual statute. And I sometimes wonder about that. How can it be that we put animals to sleep and we've been killing people by hanging or firing squad or beheading for centuries, but in 2023, we can't find a way to kill someone that isn't cruel? It seems, um, I don't know, I I question it, is my point. Do you think having dived into this and lived in this, do you think that the manner of execution argument is uh, actually one of the strongest ones against the death
1: penalty? Hmm, I mean that's a good question. I guess, you know, I don't know. It's almost a little above my pay grade in the sense like it, you say it gets down to the question of whether or not you think the government should be killing people at all. Um, well, that's that's my point. I Since I don't,
0: you could then say, oh, what about this manner of killing? I'm like, well, I don't think they should be killing him at all. What about that manner of killing? I don't think they should be killing him at all. But then when you really dive into, oh, this manner of killing is so much worse than any other or runs afoul of cruel and unusual, I, you know, if I'm trying to be extremely intellectually honest, I say, I don't know if that is definitely true.
1: Yeah. I mean I think what's what I find really interesting about this debate is how how far off the rails it's gone from what's actually about the prisoner versus what's actually about us you know and so like if you were to ask me how I'd like to be executed after everything that I've learned I would and I could choose you know I would probably choose the electric chair, and I mean, in terms of what we have available, I mean, it's somewhat instantaneous. I mean, hanging probably, oh, seated. I heard the, ele-
0: I mean, from what I've seen, the electric chair is really barbaric and it sometimes just fries people and they twitch. I would, well, if think- it goes wrong, yeah, if it goes yeah. wrong,
1: sure, yeah, but it's faster than what we do now, mm-hmm. um, or at least in, at the federal level, the pentobarbital version, and so, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, and so it's 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 sort of interesting because you are getting to a point where, like, um, you it's almost become like an experimentation situation because of the, the, like the, these drugs that are no longer available since, I want to say, like 2010 or so, it really started to happen. And so now, like, they're just trying new things constantly to try to satisfy that Eighth Amendment requirement, like you mentioned. In fact, in, the, in Alabama, they're about to try to use, you know, a gas method that's like a, a different kind of gas method that is sort of the same thing. It's like everyone's thinking, well, this must be better than the other one.
0: So one last aspect of this is you question yourself. Am I being used? I don't even know what I'm looking for. The federal government turns to me. They say, oh, we got a media witness, thus satisfying the requirement of the public knowing. I, you know, and you said, I don't, I literally don't even know what I'm looking at. There's no orientation. There's actually no one with expertise who could tell me what I'm seeing. Right. So what did you, and you know, you talked to some experts to try to talk you through that. <laughs> one of them said, I charge two fifty an hour for <laughs> psychological counseling. But what... You know, what did you decide? what do, What do you think about your role in all this?
1: Yeah, that's interesting too. You know, is um, I guess right now my my thought is that somebody has to be there. If no one's gonna be there, I mean, it's weird because it's like you know. I think that the 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 whole the whole question too is, can they even do this without us? Is another another big question. Just like a, I don't think it's ever been really questioned or challenged like legally, so I'm not sure. But you know, does the do the journalists have to even be there? And if we don't show up, then. Will they just do it anyway? Because I don't even know the answer to that question. Um, and I don't know if they've ever faced that that possibility. But I would um,
0: guess that if you and the public radio reporters and the local news reporter boycotted, they'd find someone from Breitbart or someone who's a true. member of the press to bear witness yeah. and that'd be that.
1: Probably true. Um, and so, yeah, assuming that, then, yeah, I think that um, there's other reasons to possibly question whether or not you should participate. Um, and I think that that just goes back to the method, you know. Like I don't think there's any there should be any qualms necessarily about about watching somebody get killed by a firing squad, for example. Like there would be no question about whether or not that worked the way you expect it to, whether um, right. it's the way like a layman with a liberal arts education could understand what happened to his body, you know. Yeah. But you kill someone with lethal injection. I mean, that's like another you know. There's whole there's there's ongoing scientific debate about what exactly is happening to the body it's not entirely clear um, and I could go back, I could mention too you know for example the the you asked me about the other people I saw executed they saw this one guy executed him Cory Corey Johnson um, and that's actually in a new episode that's coming up but um, I remember I was actually listening to recordings of myself just in recent weeks making that episode and I was assu- you know kind of reassuring people who knew him and his I don't know if family were there but one of his lawyers was there and I was saying, you know, it actually went, seemed to go really peacefully. Um, he seemed to just drift off, you know. Um, but a year and a half later, when we were making this podcast, we actually got a hold of an autopsy that had been done on his body. Um, and it showed that the the pulmonary edema, they call that buildup of the fluid in the lungs, was was so beyond severe. I mean, severe is like an understatement, that it was the, like the phlegm and the, the like, whatever word, I'm not sure what word this is, but the like the substance that's created when your lung, the lung material, like, you know, interacts with blood and, and other fluids like that creates this kind of like phlegmy um, stuff that it was actually coming up, you know, out of his throat and out of his mouth. Um, and and to me, it looked like he just fell asleep. But what was really happening inside of his body was something far, far more extreme. And so when I look back and I think about my reporting, and you, you're a former NPR guy, you know how short these stories are. You know, they'd ask me for 40 seconds. What happened? 40 seconds you have, you know, for the newscast tonight, whatever. And um, I would do my best in 40 seconds to describe what happened. But you would say a phrase like uh, when seemed to
0: seem to go without incident.
1: Yeah, exactly. And when in reality, you know, you don't we don't learn for much, you know, after everyone's already forgotten whatever I said that it, it, you know, they're they're a major incident. It was extremely possible. And we don't know if if he was feeling it or not. But whatever the case, uh, it wasn't going according to plan the way that the government, you know, um, is saying it did.
0: The show is called Rush to Kill. It is by member station WFIU, a uh, National Public Radio member station. And the reporter and witness to many of these executions is George Hale. George, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you. It's great.
0: And now the spiel. There is a man. He lives in Washington, D.C., whose sagacity, perspicacity, and intensity of intellect is unparalleled, apparently. Whoever or whatever is subject to his dazzling mental acuity is transmogrified from unexamined chrysalis to fully contemplated butterfly of meaning and import. I think you know the modern-day Ozymandias, this Plutarch on the Potomac. He is Joe Biden, and hearken to those who sing his praises. And for two and a half hours... He went around the table and asked for our insights and our input. And then he led a masterful conversation. That's Delaware Democratic Senator Chris Coons. Here is Vice President Kamala Harris about the president's comportment on October 7th.
1: He was in front of it all coordinating and directing leaders who are in charge of America's national security, not to mention our allies around the globe.
0: What occasion this fire hose of hosannas was, of course, the very unfair, totally inaccurate, horribly out of bounds, special prosecutor's report put together by Robert K. Hur, in which the phrase, a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory, was wielded like a cudgel. It is simply not the case, His many defenders would have you know. Even rival Republicans, according to Chris Coons, are blown away by the president's mental sharpness. And as we walked out two and a half hours later from the White House, I turned to one of my Republican colleagues who is not publicly a big fan of the president. And I said, what did you think? And he said, that's incredible. This is a man who is sharp, who is on top of his game, who knows what's going on in the Middle East and around the world. But unlike mm, Michigan J. Frog, who sings, Hello, my baby, hello, my darling, behind closed doors, but can only offer underwhelming becroakments when the lights are on, President Biden just gets unlucky. We all have such a distorted image of how he talks, thinks, and acts, based only on the countless examples of him talking, thinking, and acting in a way that indicates mm, some cognitive decline. If only there were a way or a mechanism for the public to get a sense of what Biden is like whilst conversing with others. If only there were some way to mm, record and transmit the sounds and images of Biden interacting where his purported intellectual heft was on display. Alas, we must rely only on the special counsel's notations. To be sure, it is fortunate that the latest technology of movable type and the printing press could be deployed to record a third party's impressions of the interaction. Oh, if ever a day should come when we will see and hear a reasonable simulacrum of presidential activity, perhaps perhaps a telegraph, could be run from Washington, D.C., to the many opera houses throughout the land where reenactors could perform a transcript of Joe Biden's remarks. Uh, per- further still, perhaps a children's version with puppets depicting the various heads of department and state could be commissioned, thus bringing to life Vice President Harris's description, which I suppose we only know about thanks to many monks committing her words to parchment and then transporting them via barge to the four corners of the republic st louis baltimore cleveland and buffalo but alas such fanciful technologies do not exist And this is why the president turned down the chance to be interviewed before the Super Bowl, knowing full well that what this would consist of is asking Americans to stare at a daguerreotype of the president while barrel-chested men shouted out his agenda in town squares and railway stations. Oh no, that would not suffice, nor would it put to rest the malicious obloquy that the Maleficent Scribner her foisted upon us. And so tale of the president's rapier intellect must be consigned to the stuff of fable and legend. As Paul Bunyan swung his mighty axe, so too do we hear stories of a silver-tongued octogenarian, a Delaware devil whose capacity knows no diminishment. Next to old George's cherry tree and Mr. Taft's bathtub in a White House emporium of marvels will this truth ultimately reside And also, it is faintly hoped that some measure of it shall reside in the hearts of his countrymen, or at least enough of the citizenry to stave off his truly percipient rival.
1: Bing, bing. I'm sitting there tweeting. Bing,
0: bing, bing. You press a button. Bing, bing. You know, in the old days, bing, bong. Bing, bing, bing. Bing, 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 bing. bing. Those tunnels. Bing, boom. Right under the toilet. Bing, bing, bing. It's like puppets. Bing, 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 bong, bong, bing, bing, bing. The bing, bing, bang, bang, bong. May God have mercy on all our brains. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Queen Mallards, that's what they're known as. Michelle Pesca's the special projects chief of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the Gist. Oomperoo, Peru Thanks for listening.
1: Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my ragtime gal. Send me a kiss by wire. Baby, my heart's on fire. If you refuse me, honey, you lose me. Then you'll be left alone. Oh, baby, telephone and tell me I'm your own.